Thank you. So, I want to talk to you about two things. I'll tell you a story about two words that shaped my life in two ways. When I was a little kid, I wandered into a video game store. Computers didn't uh, appear in my, many houses at the time. And I went there, and I saw this amazing game. This was a game where you played a plumber, and you were supposed to save your beloved princess by climbing up ladders, and there was this gorilla who kidnapped her, and he kept throwing barrels at you. This was an amazing game, and I was playing it for a few minutes, enjoying it and doing pretty well. When suddenly those two words that changed everything showed up. And the words were, insert coin. Then I realized that all this time, while I was playing this game and controlling everything perfectly, I was just an observer. I was not at all doing anything. And this made me think about times in my life, as a kid at the time, where I think I do things, but in fact I'm just a witness to those things. How often does it happen to us in life, when things that we are supposedly in control of are actually happening by themselves? First, it changed my life because I was kind of curious about how to win this thing and how to play without inserting coin. So I started playing with computers, figuring out how they work, ended up changing them, becoming better and like, heading more lives to this game and getting higher scores, and ultimately became a hacker, which I used for many years. And the way I did it was by trying to put myself in the minds of others. I have to break into a bank. What would the guy who stops me from doing that think? He wouldn't think that I'm going to try a username with 1,000 characters. Let's try that. So I put my, my, myself in someone else's mind for a while. But then when I was older, for the first time, I saw some scientist giving a talk about minds and about people. And he explained that actually in our brain, there's more than one person. There's at least two people inside our mind. He showed it by looking at an experiment where he had people take a pretty invasive and painful procedure. And he asked them, moment to moment, while they were going through this procedure, to rate how painful it was on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being excruciating pain, 1 being OK. And he showed two people who went through this procedure. And the first guy spent only 10 minutes doing this thing. It was pretty painful towards the end, but altogether, only 10 minutes. The second guy spent half an hour. And he also had pretty painful moments. But altogether, it ended in a pretty positive moment. So when he came back to these guys afterwards and asked them, how bad was it altogether? How bad was it? Just recall the moments ago. Tell me how bad it was. They actually gave different ratings. The guy who had a short but ended in a painful experience rated it as a much more painful thing than the other guy, although this is a mistake. Well, it's not really a mistake, as he said. There are apparently two people in our brain. One guy just evaluates things as they happen, moment to moment. He's the guy that answers the, the questions at any time. And the other guy goes back to our memories when things end and answers overall questions. If I ask you now, how was it to be a four-year-old, you can't really go back to being four-year-old. But your answer is some kind of memory that is tainted by a lot of experiences afterwards and telling me how things were when you got older. So we can't really predict the future, but apparently, we can't even predict the past. We don't really know a lot about ourselves. Well, he did one more thing, this guy, when I attended his talk. He finished the talk by saying, and kids out there, there's still a lot we don't know. Now, this I learned later is something scientists always say in the end of their talks to kind of, kind of give a disclaimer. But I was in the audience and I felt, oh my god, he's calling me, he's telling me that there's a lot they don't know, I should be in science. So I started kind of getting interested in looking at problems in science, and I found this amazing experiment done in the 60s by a guy at Caltech, where he actually showed that there are two people inside our brain, and sometimes they compete. They compete when you actually take people who have unique problems, and you split their brains in half, making the two parts of their brain kind of work against each other. So here's a guy that was 
has had his brain, is, the bridge between his hemisphere was kind of separated, and now he has two people separated in his brain, and he is told to look at this shape and build it with little cubes. The part that does good in this task is the right part, controlling the left hand, so you see that when he's trying to do it with his left hand, everything works perfectly. Takes him a second, and then he can just do that. So far, so good. Now he is asked to move his left hand and use his right arm to do the same thing. The right arm speaks to the left part of your brain, who doesn't speak to the, to, to the thinking part, and he's just not able to do that as well. You see that the left hand tries to help, but he's not able to do that. And when he's actually trying to do it with both hands together, you see the fighting happening. The two hands try to kind of do it, but one stops the other from doing it because the two brains, in, two people in his brain, are kind of competing with each other. And I said, okay, this is interesting. If only there would have been a way for me to look inside the brain and see this competition in action, if there was a way to kind of open people's brain and put something inside. But of course, there's something you cannot do. You can do it with animals, with mice and rats. You can actually put electrodes in their brain and see how things work. But who would let you open their brain and look inside? If there was someone like that, I would do that. Well, as it turns out, there was one neurosurgeon in Los Angeles who works with these overgrown rats called humans. And what he does with them is he brings them to a clinic and he puts electrodes deep inside their brain because of some brain problem they have and try to figure out what the problem is. And he keeps those wires in their brain for a few days while they're sitting there, awake, looking at TV, talking to their families. And all this while, he's looking inside, trying to see what the faulty part is so he can take it out later on and help them. But there's a unique thing there. There's a human being, like us, sitting in bed, awake, behaving, waiting for the doctors to figure out what's wrong with him. So I could come to this guy and I say, you know, you're here for a few days. Would you mind letting me, a scientist, ask you questions, talk to you, while I have electrodes inside your brain and see how your brain works? And the patients are happy to participate and let me see how the brain functions from inside. So now I can look at the brain while they think and see how thoughts look. Let me show you an example. One of my colleagues, Hagal Gelbaut Sagiv, came to one of these patients and showed her movies. So what you're going to see here is a few short clips that this patient is, is looking in. What you're going to hear is the activity of one brain cell in this woman's head. One cell out of millions, billions. And this cell speaks by kind of electric dischargers. What you're going to hear is what this cell says while she's watching those movies. Try to see if you can figure out for yourself what this cell cares about by the amount of spikes, the amount of, of activity that it makes when it watches those movies. The Simpson. This cell somehow came to life when this woman was seeing the Simpson. And what's interesting about these cells is they don't they just get active when you see something. They get active when you think about something. Here's this woman a few, a few minutes later when Hagar came to her and asked her, 
to just recall freely the clips she has just seen. And she's just speaking. One by one, she's saying, I've seen this and that. You'll see that when she remembers the Simpsons, the cell starts firing. In fact, before she even speaks, when she just thinks about it. So what we see here are thoughts in action. When I speak to you, I feel that the words come out of my mouth as I think them. I don't think about the next word before I say it. When you hear them, I hear them. The thoughts just happen. But somewhere in my brain, there's someone sitting there and actually creating those thoughts before they happen. And if I can look at this person, I can actually make him compete with others and change things. And this is what we did. We came to the patient and we said, OK, we now know how to find thoughts in your brain. We now to see, we know how to know when you're thinking of Marilyn Monroe or someone else. So we can A, look at those thoughts when you think them, and maybe put them on the screen, project them in front of your eyes. But we can do one thing even stronger. We can show you pictures of two thoughts in your brain. Here's an example. One person had a cell in their brain out of millions that we found that fires when a person thinks of Marilyn Monroe. There was another cell in this woman's brain that fired when she was thinking of the actor that she loved, Josh Bolin. We told her, we found those two cells, two people in your brain. We're going to show you now an image of those two things in front of your eyes. And we want you to focus only on one of them. Think only on Marilyn Monroe. And by thinking of her, enhance the, the thought kind of stronger in, in your brain. We're going to know that you're doing that. We're going to see the competition in your brain happening in real time. If we see that Marilyn Monroe in your brain wins, we're going to enhance her visibility. So you're going to see more of her. So try to make the image of her appear on the screen. This is trial one. In trial two, you're going to see the same visual input. But this time, think of the other person. So we're going to basically give you the same images feeding into your eyes. The only thing that's going to change is what you do inside your brain. And we're going to see the competition between the people in your brain as it happens. Here's how it looks. Succeeds with Marilyn Monroe, but first fails with Josh Bolin. But she quickly learns and becomes better. Within minutes of doing that, she learns how to control and how to help one person in her brain dominate the other. She learns how to do something that otherwise is pretty hard to do, to kind of change your, your mind. What's interesting is that sometimes she sees one thing on the screen, say Marilyn Monroe mostly, but she thinks of something else. And you see the competition in her brain between reality and imagery. We see how what's inside wins over the representation of the world coming from the outside. So we can make this woman learn how to control things inside her own brain. Now, it doesn't end with that. If we can connect her cells to a computer and move images, we can actually replace that with a robotic arm and take people who lost the ability to move their hands and have, the, have this, this brain cell control, say, uh, a hand to move left or right instead of just enhance or, or, or uh, change images. We can actually start connecting body parts to people who lost limbs or people who are unable to, to move. 
And we can actually go further and we say, okay, if we find ways to connect the brain to machines, why stop there? Why not think of things that we want to have in the future? Evolution is pretty slow. If I want wings and I have to wait for nature to do that, it's going to be a lot of generation until it gets there. Why not connect my brain to something? Now, this sounds like science fiction, but in terms of science, we're already getting there. We already know how to connect those things. What stops us mostly is kind of a religious view that the body is sacred, that we don't want to change it. But I'm going to argue that we're getting to the point where we know how to do that, and it just requires you guys to agree to change things. And you know, 60 or 80 years ago, people felt the same when some doctors offered them changes of the body, but now we see people with 60% prosthetics in their, in their body. So it's not surprising. We're just at the stage where we're accepting more and more of those changes in, in our field. Let me, I suddenly I'm going to tell you two stories. Let me finish with a different story about what we can do with the brain and how it all ties up together. What, one other thing we can do is not just connect the brain and give the patients positive feedback about the people in their brain and let them control them. We can actually uh, make them fight their own brain. We can find cells in the patient's brain that tell us that they're about to make a choice. They're about to do something. For instance, put a button in front of their eyes and tell them, whenever you want, press this button. So the patient just sits there and presses the button, and the button turns on. He does that for a few minutes. We find cells in his or her brain that tell us a second, a second and a half, before they're about to choose that. We can tell them, when you press the button, the lights turn on. But here's one thing. When the light is on, that's when we save the data. So don't touch anything when we save the data. Just wait for it to turn off again. And now that we know that they're about to do something, we can turn the light on before they started moving. So when they're about to do something, the light's already on. And we tell them, oh, I told you not to press the button. So, sorry, doctor, I, I didn't mean to. Just don't do it again, never mind. Again. And we can actually make the person fight their own brain. We can see how they become better and how they can become worse in fighting their brain. When their brain decides to do something, I know about it a little bit before they know about it. And I can either wait for them to know, or I can do things so fast that they don't even know they wanted to do that. So I can affect their choice by changing things very fast. And this, I think, is something that we all are curious about. How the two people in our brain actually exist, coexist, and also fight. We can actually get information from one person against the other and teach the people how to do that. This is what we're doing right now. If you invite me next year, I'm going to tell you more about that. I'm saving it as a surprise just yet. But I do want to tell to the people in the audience that kind of care about this thing that there's still a lot we don't know. Thank you. <laughs>